Uh, let me introduce our guest lecture tonight. So let me read this to you. Dr. Brian Miller um, did his undergrad work in physics um, at MIT and his PhD in physics from Duke University. He provides technical consulting for a Nashville-based invention guide. Is that still current? Okay. He's up in Seattle now. A Nashville-based invention guide and his... Guild. That sounds cooler. <laughs> Guild. And has served as an organizational consultant for a wide range of companies. He was technical consultant for the book God's Not Dead, which shaped the movie by the same title. Dr. Miller speaks internationally on the topics of intelligent design and on the impact that both scientific and spiritual worldviews have in society. I first met Brian in London, England, about two and a half years ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. close to it, and he was yeah. giving a similar talk. I was really impressed, um, not just with his level of intelligence, but his, his thoughtfulness and the way he engages with the subject matter in a way that's not uh, superficial or, um, or assumes anything, but he's, he's thought very carefully through uh, what, what he's gonna talk about tonight, and I appreciate that greatly. So with no further ado, Dr. Brian Miller. Thank you. Uh, it's, it, it's such a pleasure uh, to be here, and I've so enjoyed uh, meeting Simon, his staff, and being in Portland, and it's, I just moved to Seattle about three months ago. So I'm new to the Northwest. It's wonderful. I love it. It's a great culture, um, lots of great coffee and so forth. And um, it, this is actually one of my favorite topics to talk about is the issue of, of science and spirituality, because I uh, actually grew up in the, in the church. I grew up going to church, and what happened to me was I went to MIT my undergraduate year, and I read a book. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Richard Dawkins. Heard of him before? Um, he, uh, he wrote the book, uh, The God Delusion, and I, I think the title pretty much says his, his, his attitude towards religion. And I read an earlier book of his um, called The Blind Watchmaker. And what Richard Dawkins argued is that uh, people look at the world and they think they see design like the eye, of the, the eye of the human, the weather patterns. But the appearance of design is actually an illusion, that everything in the world can be explained by the natural processes of nature, matter and energy. That's called a, a materialist view of the world or naturalism. And I remember being in college, I became pretty convinced uh, from him and other people that Christianity and religion in general were just psychological crutches, that people believed in God, because they didn't know the evidence, they weren't careful thinkers. It seemed like that people that were very thoughtful and knowledgeable didn't necessarily believe in religion. And I, I came to believe that there really is a dichotomy of faith versus science. That science is something for people that are objective, that are rational, that look at evidence. And faith is for people that are more emotive, that just sort of believe things blindly, that are, that, that are into wishful thinking. And I remember uh, that was a very challenging time because I, I became pretty convinced that God probably didn't exist. And if he did exist, he was probably impersonal and distant. So I remember um, thinking about that and came to the conclusion that if that's really the case, life really has no purpose. Because it doesn't really matter if I'm happy, if I'm sad, if I fight for social justice or I fight against social justice because I'm gonna eventually die all my memories will be lost, and eventually the sun will explode, and, and, and all people will be extinct. And of course, unless, of course, they colonize outer space like the movie Interstellar. 
But that's extremely difficult for reasons which I won't get into, uh, no matter how tempting that might be. And eventually, even if that's the case, then our universe will run out of free energy and will just be a bunch of particles floating through space. Now, those are very dark thoughts as a freshman, but it wasn't just me, because if you uh, happen to read other uh, thinkers, like Lawrence Krauss, who's actually a very famous atheist, he wrote the book A Universe from Nothing, he stated that we constitute a 1% bit of pollution in the universe, we are completely irrelevant. And that's simply his logical recognition of the point of life if there is no creator, if we're just simply atoms floating around. Now, he's probably not going to be invited for a graduation speech anytime soon, but you have to admire his, his intellectual honesty. So I remember, I remember going to my room and I said, God, if you exist, and I don't really know if you do exist, but if you do exist, you have to prove it to me because I'm a scientist. I just can't do this blindly. I mean, some people might hear emotional stories and might have warm, fuzzy feelings, but I'm a scientist. It's just, it's just the facts, what's true. I need the data. That's just who I am. I thought I was cheating. I thought that was against the rules. I mean, isn't faith supposed to be blind, I thought? But I said, God, that's just the way it has to be. So that put me on a rather long journey where I studied history and philosophy and religions and, and uh, physics and chemistry and a lot of other disciplines. And, and what was interesting is I came to, to the belief that the evidence for God is overwhelming, particularly from science. But also, if you look at history, the history of things like the resurrection of Jesus is also overwhelming. So again, what I came to recognize is people didn't attack the faith because of the evidence, but they attacked it in spite of the evidence. Or another way to think about it from the science perspective is that a little science can take people away from God, but a lot of science will bring them back. In fact, the whole idea that faith and science are in conflict is a historical fiction. There's certainly been points of conflict, like with Galileo and the church. There's been things like the Scopes trial. So you do definitely see examples of where Christians are not necessarily on the right side of the fence. But that's not inherent in Christianity. That's more of a historical contingency. But if you actually look at history, you find something kind of remarkable. And I think a quote that exemplifies what I'm saying is by Albert Einstein. The most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. And you have to ask yourself, why is it that the human mind can understand quantum mechanics, which is what describes how electrons go around um, nucleuses? Or how is it that we can understand general relativity that describes how the universe expands, or at least a physicist's brain, at any rate. But um, how is it that we have the capacity to understand this? That doesn't really make sense if we're simply the product of the blind forces of nature. If our brains evolve to eat more food, to flee predators, to reproduce, why should our brain evolve to understand how the cosmos works? In contrast, if you believe in a creator, it makes sense. Because if there's a God that's a lawgiver, those laws define how the universe operates. And if we're created in the image of that God, then we're given the ability to understand the order that that God created. So people can do science if they're atheists, but they have to borrow Christian assumptions. So that was a, that was a very uh, insightful uh, comment I heard before from other scientists. But what's happened over the last century is the science has become increasingly friendly for a creator in very dramatic ways. In fact, one of the uh, most interesting discoveries is depicted by this picture. Who's heard of the Big Bang Theory? Oh, okay, okay, not the TV show with Penny and Sheldon. <laughs> 
the whole idea that the universe had a beginning. What's happened is modern cosmology has recognized that because of general relativity, because of the redshift of the expansion of our universe, what people realize, if you go back in time, our universe had to have a beginning. All of time, space, matter, and energy some seem to have come about in the beginning moment, a singularity, as some used to call it. Well, what does that tell us? If everything began, then there must have been something that started it, which is outside of time and space. Something infinitely powerful that chose to create everything in a burst of energy. What, that that kind of rings a bell, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God created the heavens and the earth. So cosmology is an incredible discovery that points back to creation. Now, even beyond that, as physicists have studied the laws of physics, um, and other folks like chemists and, and, and planetary scientists, what they found is that the universe is designed for life. That if you think about a random universe, like let's imagine that this mixer board controls a universe that you're about to create. So you control the knob which controls gravity, you control the knob that controls how electrons and protons attract each other, you control the initial expansion rate of the universe, you control the initial entropy, and there's like numerous other parameters like the mass of the electron, the mass of the proton and the neutron, the, the strong nuclear force. I'm, I'm starting to over, sorry about that. It's my physics moment's coming out. Um, the force that holds like the neutrons together and the, and the protons together in the, in the nucleus. What happens? is if these dials are not perfectly set, our universe would not support life. So you ever been to a concert and a few of the dials are off? What does the concert sound like? Kind of have that feedback loop. It's not a very pleasant experience. In the same way, if these dials weren't perfectly set, our universe should have simply been a bunch of particles floating through space, or it should have been a bunch of black holes in the middle of our, our universe, or, some co- or just some, some uh, plasma of particles flo- floating around. So you get things like planets, and chemistry, and carbon, is really, really hard. In fact, to get all of that useful stuff for life, you have to set some of the parameters very tightly. Like, for instance, the mass of the neutron If it were a fraction of a percent larger, we would only have hydrogen in our universe. No life. If it was a fraction of a percent smaller, we would simply have a bunch of neutrons that form black holes. No life. Other parameters are even more specifically set. So imagine you're trying to tune the knob for gravity. You're trying to get it just right. You ever been like in your car and you're trying to get the dial to that faint station? So you're trying to get the, the gravity just right. How precise do you have to be for gravity? Well, any of, you, any of you shoot guns like target practice? Now, if you're really, really good, if you're like a Jason Bourne, perhaps you could hit a target that's maybe, oh, one, two miles away, if you're really, really good. Well, imagine hitting a target that's the size of a pea at the other end of our galaxy. That's the precision needed to set gravity such that you could have life. If gravity were just a little bit larger, you'd have just a bunch of mass in the middle of the universe. If gravity were just a little bit smaller, it'd be a bunch of particles floating through space. No planets, no sun, no stars, no life. So what we see is that the laws of physics seem to have been designed with life in mind. 
Now, it's not just simply that with the laws of physics. Because if you look at everything about our planet, Earth, our moon, our sun, our galaxy, there are dozens and actually hundreds of parameters that have to be right for us to support life. You have to be the right distance from the sun, the right tilt, the right rotation rate. We have to have a magnetic shield to protect us from radiation. A moon the right size to stabilize our orbits and to circle the oceans through tides. You've got to have a sun that produces the right energy, a sun that is very stable. You've got to have an atmosphere that we can breathe in, an atmosphere that allows the right type of energy through and, and blocks the wrong type. Ozone layer to block radiation, magnetic shield. Our galaxy has to be a spiral galaxy. We have to be not too close in the center so we don't get fried by supernova, but not too far away so we have enough materials. So the list goes on and on and on. And if you look at the number of parameters, like there was actually a guy named Hugh Ross, that calculated like 800 parameters. And he argued that the odds of a planet like Earth supporting life as well as ours does is virtually zero, even given the size of our universe, even given a trillion universes. And people that are much, much more conservative might be more cautious, but virtually everyone recognizes that where the science is going is pointing to the idea that our planet looks like it wasn't an accident, but it was created with us in mind. Now, why us? Well, because if you think about a planet that could support bacteria, that wouldn't be quite as hard. You could imagine maybe some ocean and some moon of Jupiter that, that you could get some minerals. But to get complex life, humans, life that can, that can create technology is much more difficult. We'd have to have oxygen at the right level. We'd have to have minerals to produce technology. So what you find is our planet is designed not just for any life, but for life that produces civilization. In fact, one of the neat examples is that if you want to study the stars, the atmosphere has to be transparent. That's not a given. It just so happens our atmosphere that we can breathe is transparent so that we can study the stars. It just so happens we're in the right part of our galaxy away from a lot of the cosmic dust so that we can see our entire galaxy and other galaxies. It just so happens that the magnetic shield that protects us from radiation allows us to navigate the oceans. And one of my favorite examples, fire. If you look at the atmosphere, the oxygen level is perfect for us to breathe. Because if we had less oxygen, we wouldn't be able to do anything very strenuous. If there was more oxygen, the oxygen would start to, to rot our innards. It'd be almost like a, an apple that rots in the sun. But if the oxygen were eat less, also we wouldn't be able to produce fire. But if the oxygen were greater, it would burn down all our forests, kind of like in California. So what we find, again, is that it's not just it's designed for life, but it looks like it was designed for intelligent life that can produce civilization. Now, let me use an analogy of why that's so interesting. Imagine you're walking through the woods and you come across a cabin. You go to the cabin and you find in the refrigerator is your favorite food. You go to the closet, you notice in the closet there's a lot of clothes that perfectly fit you. But then you go to the living room and you notice there's pictures of all your relatives and friends on the wall. Now it's getting a little bit creepy. But then you go, and you notice there's a cell phone with your best friend's numbers programmed in order. Now, most people wouldn't think, what an amazing coincidence. I'm really lucky. No, most people would recognize that somebody knew you were coming and set up the cabin with you in mind. The exact same thing is true with our universe, with our planet, with our sun, with our galaxy. Someone knew we were coming, so that creator set everything up perfectly for us to live and to advance in culture, civilization, and technology. 
So that was very encouraging as I learned these facts. But what's really interesting is the issue of biology because many people feel if there's any field in conflict with faith, it's biology. So the idea is because of Darwinian evolution, as Richard Dawkins would say, evolution allowed people to be intellectually fulfilled atheists. He would argue that evolution is a theory that just dissolves away faith. Well, the challenge for that is one, if you don't have life, you don't have evolution. Because evolution explains what happens after you have cells. Where did the cells come from, and could they have come about by the blind forces of nature? Or, when you look at the earliest cell, the simplest possible cell, does it point to a designer? Well, as it turns out, life cannot come about by the blind laws of nature. And here's why. Nature has two driving tendencies, two major tendencies. One is for things to go from high energy to low energy. Water runs downhill. Water doesn't run uphill. Just so you know, I'm condensing like three semesters of thermodynamics in like two minutes, so be encouraged. <laughs> and nature goes from order to disorder. It's called entropy. I won't go into the equation, but let's use a simple example. Is it easier to keep your room messy or to keep your room neat? Do you keep trying to mess up your room, but you keep coming back and it's in perfect order? No, it's easy to become messy or high entropy. That's what nature does. Now, your roommates don't look at each other in a dirty way. That wasn't nice. <laughs> but, um, but what do you see with a cell? A cell has very high energy. You eat food to live. But it also has very high order or low entropy. There is nothing in nature that goes from low entropy, uh, from high entropy to low entropy, and from low energy to high energy. That's physically impossible. For those chemists, you may have heard of free energy. The free energy combines those two tendencies, and everything in the universe goes from high free energy to low free energy, but life has to do the opposite, which is physically impossible. So that, that's a situation. In fact, people have asked the question, what is the likelihood of life coming about purely by chance? And numbers you often hear are things like 1 in 10 to the 40,000. That's kind of like the classic examples, like a tornado going through a junkyard, throwing everything up in the air, and seeing a 747 fall to the ground, filled with gas, and ready to fly. But that calculation is a little naive, because it doesn't take into account the driving tendencies of nature, right? So again, nature goes from high energy to low energy, and from high um, order to high entropy. So when you actually take that into an account, the odds of life forming drop to about 1 in 10 to the 100 million. This was a calculation done by a man named David Horowitz, and it's in his book, The Thermodynamics of the Origin of Life. So that's something you may want to look into. The point is, life isn't going to come about by chance. But there's something even more interesting about life, because it's not just life seems impossible by physical processes, by, by itself. It also shows positive evidence of a designer. Now, what is that evidence? Well, when you look at the simplest possible cell, you have to have chemicals in a very specific order and sequence, either amino acids in proteins or, as is more popular, DNA. So if you remember, DNA essentially is a long molecule 
which has base pairs, which are called nucleotides, and the letters of DNA are T, C, A, and G. So T, C, A, G is like your alphabet, almost like Morse code, you've got dots and dashes, in computer science you've got zeros and ones. Well, in, in, when you're dealing with DNA, you've got this four-letter code. So what happens is these letters have to be in a very, very specific order in order for a cell to function properly. It's the instruction manual for your cell. It's what allows the cell to operate. So if you had a perfect cell, absolutely perfect, except the ordering of the instructions is not correct, the cell would quickly break down into simple chemicals. Now, to understand the implications of that, let me use an analogy. Have you ever have like Campbell's alphabet soup growing up? Like you have like your letters and you stir them up, and what do you always hope to see in your soup? Your name, yeah. Now, if your name is Bob, that's a lot more likely than if it's Ulysses Jinglemeyer Schmidt. So, again, if your name is Bob or Sam, that may be possible. So that might happen. So what can happen is pure chance can produce information. Pure chance can produce an ordered sequence. But let's imagine you are stirring up your soup, you go to the restroom, you come back, and you see the message, drink lots of fluids, get lots of rest, I hope you feel better soon. How many of you would think, oh, what an amazing coincidence? How many of you would think, I can explain this by the organic chemistry of the pasta? Or I can explain this by the physics of the boiling water? You wouldn't say that, would you? Because you know, when you see an ordered sequence of letters that conveys a message, that points to a mind. Because the ordered sequence of letters is different from the chemistry of the pasta or the physics of the boiling water. In the same sense, when you look at the origin of life, it had to have DNA. And inside the DNA, or something very similar, this has to have a very specific order. It's not a random order, it's nearly random, but it's a very specific sequence, which is fantastically improbable. So when you look at that information in DNA, it points to a mind as clearly as the message in your Campbell's soup. So that's very inspiring in terms, that really encouraged me as I started to, to understand the idea of information. Well, what happens is you could ask the question, if you see design at the origin of life, if you see design at the origin of the universe, what it looks like is that the universe is not like a clock that was just wound up and then it's just sort of ticking away. It looks more like a musical instrument. Like if you have a musical instrument, it's designed to be played, right? In the same way, our universe seems to have been designed to allow an intelligence to infuse it with information, to infuse it with purpose. Again, we see it at the origin of the universe, at the origin of life. So you could ask the question, do we see that throughout life's history? And in fact, we do. Because if you think about the traditional Darwinian model, let's say we talk about a purely atheistic model of evolution. The idea is that you've got cells that form a long time ago. They evolve, become more advanced. You get the animals, the plants, the fungi, the bacteria, the archaeobacteria. So you have the major domains of life. Then these major branches split into sub-branches, like your phyla, like your clams, your, your brachiopods, your vertebrates, and so forth. So you have this tree of life. So the idea is that you have random changes, random mutations, natural selection over millions and millions and millions of years, gradual change. You've all heard that story, right? Well, if you look at the fossil record, it's a tad bit different. What you see is what's called evolution's big bang, or what's called the Cambrian explosion. So if you go far, far back in the Earth's history, you see cells that go all the way back, 
you see these very strange creatures called the Etocanarian fauna that nobody's quite sure what they are. You see, um, you see tracks of pat possibly worms, maybe a mollusk, but suddenly what you find in a period of a geological instant is a lot of radical new body plans that appear without ancestors. So what you find is you have a picture like this. So you have this period called the Cambrian Explosion, where you have cells and other creatures that go all the way back, but then the first time you see an animal body plan, it appears suddenly, and then that basic plan remains intact. When you have a fish, that's the basic plan of a vertebrate, everything that comes later that's in that basic phyla has a similar architecture in many different ways with variations on themes. What you don't see are a series of ancestors leading back from these phyla back to the trunk of a tree. In other words, Darwin's tree of life doesn't exist in physical reality. It's conceptual. That what you find is you could imagine that maybe, just maybe, you can imagine like a trilobite may have come from something earlier, but that change happened in a geological instance. And you're seeing, again, evidence of massive amounts of information infused into, your, into the system of life. Now, what you find is the question is, well, maybe that could be explained naturally. Maybe there could be a series of mutations and natural selection. And maybe those mutations could cause really big changes really fast, right? You've heard that before, if you've watched X-Men at least. But if you look at life, it's not so simple. Because what you find in nature is that the beneficial mutations you do see in nature, like sickle cell anemia, uh, resistance to antibiotics, uh, resistance to HIV, all those mutations affect things like proteins, the, the, the basic end products of life. What you never see is a beneficial mutation change in organism's basic architecture where the heart's located, the way the veins and arteries interconnect, the three-dimensional structure of the skull. Again, you do see some beneficial mutations, but none of them affect your basic architecture or body plan. And there's a reason for that. What happened is there was some, some uh, very clever scientists like Eric Davidson who studied the development of organisms. Like, this is, a star, this is a starfish. And if you look at development, what happens is the sperm and an egg come together, you get cell division, you become a larva, and eventually into an adult. And these de these, um, this development takes place through what are called developmental gene regulatory networks. This is a network that describes how development takes place. It's in these networks of genes, which almost look like a control system of a space shuttle, that control the formation of the body plan of an, of an organism. It, it's part of it. It's not all the whole story. And what people found is if you mutate these even slightly, if you change these networks, it's always catastrophic if it's an early change. What that means is that it's impossible to change the basic structure of an organism because to do it, you have to change these developmental genes, and that's always harmful. We don't see X-Men. It never happens. So what that means is that you have to have an infusion of intelligent information in a geological instance to restructure an organism to explain the pattern in the fossil record. So again, what you find is to have a new body plan requires enormous amounts of new information. In fact, this is an amazing quote by Bill Gates. He said, human DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any we've ever created. And it's not true with human DNA, it's true with all DNA. And what you find 
is that if you want to add a new function to your computer, like, a new, like an Excel spreadsheet, something like Adobe, what do you have to add to your computer? Software, programming. In the same way, if you want a new body plan, what you have to do is you have to add enormous amounts of new information into the genome to create this new body plan. So again, what you find, just as a review, you see evidence of a creator who's outside of time and space that created their entire universe, but that creator designed our universe with life in mind, that creator has been involved in our universe through the formation and development of life, and that creator seems to have had everything directed for the pinnacle of creation, which was human life. So what we find is that the picture of a creator described in science fits very closely with what we see from the Christian faith. Now, to go from a generic creator to the actual Christian faith, you have to go beyond the science to history, to philosophy, to other disciplines. And my experience and the experience of, of people that studied this is that that evidence points to a creator as clearly as a scientific evidence in the creator of the Bible, of Jesus Christ. But that's a longer story. Thank you. That made sense. Uh, uh, thank you. That was actually, uh, that was very compelling. So questions. Um, okay. Uh, let's go ahead and if you wouldn't mind, if you can just speak into the mics, everyone can hear it clearly. The acoustics in the room can be a bit tricky. Tricky. So if you wouldn't mind just coming up to the microphone. Uh, go for it, please. Hey, is this on? Hey, um, Stephen, could you pull up it's the on. slides again? Could you pull up the slide with uh, the um, the tree, like the Cambrian and pre-Cambrian? Oh, that, that one? one? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, one after that. What's that? The, the slide after that. There we go. Uh-huh. I was just curious, what is the trunk? Like what? Oh, okay, great question. Fantastic question. So what happens is the idea is the trunk of the tree would be the uh, last universal common ancestor. LUCA is what it's called. So that would be a single-celled organism that we don't know exactly what it's like, but that single-celled organism would have become more advanced, and that would have broken into things like bacteria, archaeobacteria, the, uh, the, um, eventually into the eukaryotes, and that would eventually break into all the different animals, the metazoan, like your trilobites, your clams, your fungi, and so forth. So it's just branching after branching, but the trunk would have been the single-celled organisms, most likely. Okay. Uh, did you have a question right uh, in the back there? You wanna, wanna go for it? So my question is, um, I guess, more historical. And, you know, you look at all the religions in the world, you know, from all, I mean, there's so, there are, right. there are so many. I wouldn't uh, say all of them, that would be a bit of an exaggeration, but I, I kind of looked at the panorama. So I guess what, what common themes, you know, do you see in, in all of these, besides, you know, the theme of just, you know, there was a creator. Right. Um, how, do, you know, how do you, what, what are the common themes that you're seeing that explain, that would really give some evidence to support a creator? 
Great question. That's a fantastic question. So when you look, uh, and again, when you look at the data, you always have to look at the data through a lens, through a set of assumptions. It's like if you're wearing glasses, and you, let's say you have the wrong set of glasses, the wrong prescription, you look at the world, it's kind of fuzzy, right? There's, dis there, there's discontinuity. And then when you put on the right glasses, suddenly the world makes more sense. So obviously I come to this perspective from biases, from a perspective, but I would argue within the Christian narrative, you make the most sense of the data. So what you find within the Christian narrative is that we were created by God, we're created to be in a relationship with our creator, um, a loving God that's personal, that, that called us to steward creation. The idea is that people chose to rebel against their creator and said, you know, God, thanks for everything, but we're going to do it our way. And that turning from God is what created a separation between us and our creator. And what happens is it's kind of like if you take a plant and you cut off the roots of the plant, what happens to the plant? It dies. It doesn't receive the nutrients it needs. In the same way, we're created to be in a relationship with a God that gives us complete love, complete acceptance, and a sense of purpose. So when we don't have that, it creates a sickness of the human heart, and we fill the hole with idols. So that's why people get obsessed with, with career, with, with uh, making money, with sex, with drugs, with whatever. It's always trying to be a form of filling a hole that can never be filled without a creator. So what happens as part of that is the creation of religion. So we're created with a need to connect with the transcendent. Now, if any of you ever doubt that, go to UNC after they won the final four, and you'll see a wonderful example of, of worship and adoration, of vicariously living through... So, so again, we, we see it, right? So what happens is people created different religious systems by looking at the world and trying to do the best they could to figure out who is this God and how do we get to this God? So you see a commonality of a transcendent reality, a commonality that there's something in our world that's not quite right, a commonality that there's some way that we need to try to get back to the truth. Now, what happens, though, is a lot of what people looked at was very contextual. So there's a lot of differences. Like some people think God is single, some think God is multiple, some think God is impersonal, some think God is, is, uh, is different aspects, that we're God, we're all connected. In the Christian narrative, what happened is God chose to reach down to us. So God came to the form of, of Jesus Christ to reveal to people who he really was. So Jesus wasn't the savior of Christians, he was the savior of the entire world. Jesus wasn't just simply trying to fulfill the longings of the Jewish people at the time, but he's trying to fulfill the longings of all religious systems, that he is the pinnacle of what everyone is looking for because he's come to reconnect us to God. Because often people try to reconnect to God through ritual, through knowledge, through good works, through sometimes condemning others. Maybe if I condemn others, I'll feel better about myself. But that doesn't work. Because the challenge is the separation is too great because there's a brokenness in our hearts. We have proclivities and tendencies for selfishness that we can't overcome. So God had to say, I need to do the heavy lifting. So when people come to encounter Jesus Christ, what happens, it's almost like the downloading of a new... Like if you ever worked with Microsoft, and you ever notice if the, if the computer goes totally buggy, what do you have to do? You have to reinstall the operating system. In many ways, when we encounter Jesus, he represents true humanity. 
the fullness of what we were meant to be, and we encounter him, his perfect life gets infused into us, and our operating system gets reoriented day by day by day. Now, the challenge is, for most people in America who are Christian, it doesn't necessarily work that well. Because Jesus said, you've got to choose the center of your sense of truth, the center of your life. You have to choose the ultimate source of your trust and hope. He said, you can't serve two masters. So, so many people in America try to serve two masters. So they try to be Christian and do the religious thing and and obey the rules and, and go to church. But there's still a sense of their identity and their purpose is centered on something else. So it's trying, to, it's trying to install two operating systems at once. It kind of, you get a lot of buggy errors, and that's what most people's lives are like, lots of error bars. The challenge is when we say, God, here's my life. I give myself fully to you. Examine my brokenness and transform me. Then that transformation takes place, and we can encounter a God as a loving father, as a person who's with us, that speaks hope and life and encouragement. In fact, what happens is Jesus came to save us from religion. Because again, I lived in the South for years. I've seen the ugliness of religion, of Christian religion, where people see religion as kind of the system of good works that you try to to make yourself better. And if people don't fulfill those those rules, you kind of judge them and treat them hatefully. And it's kind of us against them. And it gets very ugly. And Jesus came to save us from ugly religion into true relationship. So that's kind of my experience. I've been excited about this all week. All right, so um, this question has been, uh, you kind of touched on it in the beginning. So um, the evolution of our minds and our understanding of everything um, is really like, something God has planned us to do. So eventually, we're, our understanding of things get, you know, will evolve, and eventually we'll understand more things like what, you know, how to do stuff later. Right. Got it. So when it comes to, like, the Bible and, like, the church and everything like that, our minds are going to evolve and our understanding is going to change. So um, how is it that eventually we'll be going to a point where we actually our own I guess intelligence will contradict our own faith. So how, how do we, I guess as a Christian, how do you avoid that conflict? Okay. Um, uh, so what happens is in the Christian perspective, we have truth which has been revealed through God throughout history. Like in the Christian framework, you have God speaking to Abraham, speaking to Isaac, speaking to Moses. And what's happened is the people, when they were fallen and separated from God, they were, God kind of worked with them over years and was kind of leaning, guiding them in a direction of where they were meant to be. So back in, let's say, like the Old Testament, talked about slavery, right? Not because God liked slavery, but because that slavery was so um, infused into the culture that God had to lead them out of it step by step. It's kind of like if, if someone said, fossil fuels are harming our environment. We all believe that, Right? But what if someone said, tomorrow, no one can ever use fossil fuels again? What's going to happen to the country? Not good. So what happens is someone say, no, let's begin by having better battery technology. Let's create solar panels that are cheaper so we don't have to get rare earth minerals from China. Stuff like that. The same way God would take people and walk them in a direction that would express what a restored creation would look like. They didn't do so well. 
What happened with Jesus is he came and he brought that to a pinnacle where it wasn't just simply for one culture, but for all cultures. And what Jesus said actually is, I've got many more things to teach you, but you can't bear them now, but the Holy Spirit will reveal them as time goes on. So what happens is absolute truth was revealed, is recorded in scripture, but then as our culture adapts to different environments, the Holy Spirit gives us guidance of how to apply those principles in different contexts. Not to mention, we can use technology to create new things that help the world and so forth. So there's always this progression taking place. The truth doesn't change, the relationship doesn't change, but how we apply it changes as we become wiser as, as individuals and as cultures. Now eventually what happens is Jesus will return, then all of the evil in the world will be removed and nature will be brought to its full complete state a state of where we're meant to be, a state where the world is meant to be, where all evil is removed. And then what happens then? Hard to know. Who knows? Maybe we'll have super experiments. Who knows? <laughs> but that's where we'll be. Um, you're very good at presenting both sides of the discussion. You know, I appreciate that. Um, so after your upbringing and then um, diving into the academic world and that exploration, um, what conclusions have you come personally to? And... Uh, um, you know, I don't want to pry too deep, but sure. uh, from that point, um, what kind of feedback have you received from either side? Aha, great question. So what's the response? Uh, now, any of you ever see The Truman Show? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a really interesting show because what happens is, and I'm, I'm sorry to spoil this for you if you haven't seen it, but if you haven't seen it, shame on you. Go watch The Truman Show. <laughs> but um, incredible movie with Jim Carrey, his best by far. So what happened is Jim Carrey is actually living his life. He's in this, this uh, uh, Seacrest or whatever the name is. And Truman Burbanks, it thinks everything is normal, but it turns out he's actually the star of reality TV show, but he doesn't know it. It's very challenging. So everyone around him are actors and actresses. And what happens is things happen that don't make sense. Like, uh, like the skylight falls from the sky. It says camera number five or something. The radio starts following him around, which makes no sense. He, a homeless person says, comes out of nowhere and tries to disrupt his world, and he's carted away magically by people he doesn't know. And of course, my favorite is when a guy parachutes in with a t-shirt that says, Truman, you're on a TV show. The challenge is every time people try to present the truth to Truman, there are forces that block that truth. There's a radio announcer that says, oh, they're just a bunch of crazy homeless people. Don't listen to them. Oh, that woman that told you that you're on a TV show, she was just crazy, don't listen to her. There's newspaper articles saying, oh, there's a, a plane dropped a skylight. And that's the challenge. Is the evidence for a creator is strong and simple and accessible, but there's enormous amounts of disinformation that blind people from the truth. And if you're not, I spent 20 years going back and forth in argument, counter-argument, and it's not easy to, to break through the smokescreen and to see, to see past the wizard with the, with the flames and see what's happening behind the curtain. What's happened in our culture, in, in, in Western Europe, in Western European culture, is people chose to embrace the idea that there was no creator involved in the world and we're simply here by the blind forces of nature. So a lot of the science has operated like the creation mythology of that story. And what happens is you don't question your creation mythology. That's a lens you see through. It's not a lens you critique. So people will say, okay, yeah, maybe there's this evidence of design, but it's an illusion. We know 
that the blind forces of natural selection can do it all in a remarkably short amount of time. So no evidence can ever challenge that because that's a faith assumption. That's the grid used to interpret all the data. So the opposition is you're not doing real science because you're not using our grid. You're not looking at the world from the perspective that there is no design, and because you're not doing that, you're not a true science scientist. The challenge, though, is to get people to consider the possibility that they should look at the world through a different lens, and when they do, the world makes more sense. But it's costly. Like, I love the end of the Truman Show. Sorry. But what happens is in order for Truman to break free of the Truman Show, he had to be willing to give up everything. He had to go against opposition. And the challenge is most people want a life that's comfortable, free of opposition. So truth is not as valuable as security. So most people don't pursue the truth. They pursue what's comfortable and then convince themselves that what they believe they came to because of rational reasons when most likely it was TV comedians, it was their professors, it was outside sources that put them inside the Truman Show and they haven't had the courage to break free. Um, I'd like to just interject a follow-up question that quickly. I think it's important to always consider both sides of the argument. Yeah. We're getting one side tonight uh, primarily and I think you've been fair, but there is another side to be sure. And I was wondering if you could recommend uh, perhaps a resource, maybe a book, you'd say, you know what, that's, that's a very fair and right, compelling right. argument right. from the other right. side. The, the best book is a book that came out by Dennis Venema. It's called Adam and the Genome. And he's actually a Christian, but he, he's a theistic evolutionist. And he's collected the best arguments against my perspective. And what we're actually doing now is we're going to be responding with a series of, blog, of news articles over the next uh, six months. But that would be the best critique. And uh, we'll have our response to it out in the next six months. Can you say his name one more time, please? Dennis Venema. Dennis Venema. And it's Adam in the Genome. Okay. Uh, yeah, that'd probably be, that's probably the best out there, actually. And then our website is, if you go to evolutionnews.org, you can actually look up responses we've done to similar arguments in the past. And let me give an example of how this works. And, and I'm going to do an article about his book soon. And I'll talk about how the looking glass works. Because Dennis is a, is a man of high integrity, high competence, did an excellent job of the response. But nevertheless, he's still seen the world through a grid. Let me use an, an example. There's a guy named Douglas Axe that did experiments on the rarity of proteins. Like, proteins are the building blocks of life. Uh, they're made of amino acids, so it's a sequence of amino acids in the same way that letters form a sentence. He found that proteins are incredibly rare. It's like one in 10 to the 77 sequences forms a functional protein. That's like the number of atoms in a trillion galaxies. So clearly, evolution won't work. So what's happened, if you read Dennis Venema or other people, they'll say, well, there's this response, and it's got by a guy named Arthur Hunt, and he said, this is why I don't like his experiment, uh, the reasons I don't like it. But again, what's interesting is Douglas's research has been reviewed by top experts in the field, but the critics who present these arguments are not experts in the field. So even an objective outsider has to recognize that there's something wrong. In fact, Douglas Axe has responded to all of the critiques of his work, and our critics have completely ignored our responses. So that's something that's suggestive to me, at least. So. Thank you. Um, there was a hand 
Back there, yeah. Go ahead and... Um... Hi, Brian. Hey. Um, I really love how you brought up high energy and high entropy. Uh-huh. Um, and this is, like, really near and dear to me, but could you um, answer this question just with the resources that you have, but is there empirical evidence that supports an everlasting point in time? Because I look at it from the biblical narrative, right? Right. Like, man was designed to be always. Right. Right? And then sin entered in the world, and now it's entropy. Right. So I just love your... Oh, yeah. It, uh, what's interesting is the question of time and our world, because time is deeply interconnected with space and matter. So if you have a heavy, heavy object, time actually slows down. If you've seen the movie Interstellar, it was a little bit exaggerated, but that's kind of the idea. <laughs> um, it was a good movie, I'm sorry. But, um, but also with, with like space and energy. So like if you've got two spaceships going past each other, their clocks tick at different rates. So there's a God who exists outside of our time frame. He has like a God time. So it's quite possible that when creation comes to an end, it'll be recreated in such a way that time will function a very different way as well as entropy. We don't know what that's like, but it'll be pretty awesome, I imagine. Hey, another entropy question, actually. Uh, I just, I've just been thinking about this. So, um, for instance, just a really simple example. A growing human um, is being built right. um, through metabolic processes. Right. Um, and each one of those, you could say that uh, they're leading to an increase in order that we, that we see. Sure. But, of course, we're not violating thermodynamics. Right. Every process is, is leading to an increase in entropy. Right. Um, I think my, my question is, is it, really, is it really fair to say that life, um, existence of life, like, does not, um, it, is, it, like, it doesn't really go well with right. this understanding that everything always goes to disorder without sure. some kind of divine intervention? That is a spectacular question. Thank you. What do you study, by the way? Um, I, got, I got my degree in zoology. Okay, good. Yeah, I figured as much. Excellent question. Um, I love that question. I've thought like a year about that question. So what happens is if you talk about the issue of origin of life, people make the mistake of saying everything goes from order to disorder. That's not true. Because if you freeze water, it goes, from, it goes into a more ordered state, Right? So entropy actually decreases. But the reason that happens is because local entropy can decrease if the global entropy increases. So you have, um, like water, for instance, it's a lower entropy state, but it's also a lower energy state. So you go to a lower energy state, the heat is released, and the increase of the entropy of the outside universe is greater than the entropy decrease when water froze. So far, so good? Yeah. Okay, so again, what people talk about is the idea of free energy, like Gibbs free energy if you're dealing with constant temperature and pressure. So what happens in Gibbs free energy is you compensate for that. So Gibbs free energy is actually measuring the increase of the entropy of the entire universe. So if you take the delta G divided by T, you're talking about your entire entropy increase of the universe. Every process, 
always will cause the entire universe to increase. So all processes that are spontaneous go from high free energy to low free energy. Life requires you to go from low free energy to high free energy, which never happens. Now let's get to your point, though. Why does it work with a human that's being born? Why does it work for a cell, right? Well, that's because you've got machinery. The only way around that is with machinery that can process fuel or process light and then convert that into the right type of work to produce a specific type of order. So the only way around that is with machinery. So the simplest possible cell required some sort of machinery, like an ATP synthase, like a chloroplast, whatever. Whatever the machinery was, it had to be there. And that machinery is what could process the fuel. But you don't just need machinery, you need information. Let me use an analogy. Let's imagine you're in your house, and it's really messed up. And you think, all I need is energy to organize my house. So you take some gasoline, you put it on your couch, on the drapes, and you light the fire. Now there's fire, lots of energy. Will that organize your house? No, it's going to burn it down. It's more entropy. Because raw energy adds entropy. Like technically, you're going to have your delta S as your delta Q over T if you're talking about a, um, an equilibrium system. But we won't go there. Um, I guess I did. Now, Again, what you need is a robot. So a robot could take your fuel, and the engine could process the, the, the energy to do work, right? But if your robot's just throwing things around randomly, is that going to organize your house? No, you need a program, instructions. In the same way, the reason a baby is born, the reason that development takes place, the reason a cell can function, is because you've got the information telling it how to form, and you've got machinery that processes fuel and redirects it to the type of work necessary to create the order that you want. The problem is when you're talking origin of life, you don't have that machinery. In fact, the existence of that machinery depends upon the machinery being there to bring it into being. That's the problem. <laughs> we'll go to you next. We're going to um, take this young lady. Go ahead, Chile. I have a lot of equations for that if you have an extra few hours, just as you used to say, no. So I'm not even sure if I can explain this right, but I've always wondered, so before the fall, there was no death, correct? But in the human system, there's, there's constant death in right, cells. Right, right. Like, in order for us to survive, we need death. Right. And so how do you reconcile the death of cells with the, the fall? Like, right. yeah. Great, great question. Um, and that's a hugely debated. And it, a lot of it depends on how you interpret the days of Genesis. So some interpret the days of Genesis as like six 24-hour days about 6,000 years ago. And the argument is there was no death before the fall, period. Other people argue that the days could be longer periods of time, like a heros, so that you did see animal death before the fall, which kept the system in balance, but not human death. So human death happened after the fall, but not animal death. That's the difference. So the people that, like, Hugh Ross has thought through this in, in, in extraordinary detail, like reasons.org, he goes into all the theology. I more don't look, focus on the theology too much. I'm more of a minimalist. I'm just showing the positive evidence for design. So, but those are the different perspectives. 
Um, go ahead. And then you had a question. Uh, was it Garrett? Yeah. And then you can go ahead. So this is perfect timing. I live, I live in Seattle too, and I just literally just happened to be walking by, and I oh. just I just came in, and uh, <laughs> this is great. So I, it's perfect timing, and I, it's probably a God thing, right? Talking to me, come in. Um, but uh, I just came from Seattle, where my um, I have my uh, my parents-in-law. They're very conservative Christian. And they, and they brought this um, DVD for my kids of, like, dinosaurs around the ark with Noah. And, right, right. you know, the earth is 6,000 years old and the flood and, and, right, right, and right. there's no evolution, blah, blah, blah. And then, so, so, there's, so that's, that's their perspective. And it seems like, you know, their conservative Christianism, their Christianity is, it starts with presupposition of the earth is 6,000 years old sure. and, and the flood and whatever. Sure. And then on the left, it's like, it's just evolution and that's, you know, what I kind of thought too. Like, it's just evolution, that's just the way it is, and it's from whatever, and, and God exists, but. Um, so, so why does it, you know, if there's people on the right who believe this, and people on the left who believe just in science and evolution, why does your perspective, why does it matter for us as Christians to have this, like, evidence-based, we're, we're working from science? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and and again, I think it's part of it's part of well, one science is a God-given enterprise. We're meant to take dominion of the earth, understand it. So, science is a Christian vocational calling, and truth is always a value. So that's the key: is we just need to pursue the truth. Period. That's what we should do. And a challenge is it's sometimes subtle. It's sometimes complex. Like a lot of us assume. God wrote the Bible as if it was written to 21st century Westerners. Okay, so I expect there to be modern cosmology. I expect you to speak to our issues in our language, in our context. That's not what happened. That's why you have books written in over a few thousand years. Different cultures, different contexts. So what happens is we see the absolute truth embodied in a culture, in a context, so we can go back and draw wisdom of what it looks like in all those different environments. So in our context, it's probably going to have something that's very parallel to a few of those contexts. So that's key. It's incarnational. It's not like the Quran, where the Bible just kind of flew out of space and landed. It's, it's, it's acultural. It's always contextual. So when you do that, you have to step into the framework of the people that were hearing the message. So then we can think, what was God speaking to them in that culture, in that context? And now we can translate it to our context. Now, people living in a time before modern science would have a lot of trouble with things like deuterium bottleneck, general relativity expansion, cosmic inflow. Well, maybe you would too. The point being, <laughs> the language... What Genesis says is absolutely true, but it's in the language, in the literary style that was accessible to them that conveyed the truth in a way that's meaningful. So we have to be very careful to understand what are the centers of our faith, like the resurrection, the creation, the final judgment, and what are secondary issues that we have to navigate through. That's what's key. No problem. remember this correctly, I might get a name wrong, though. Um, I know you're a physicist. This is more of a biological question, I guess. Um, you were talking about machinery. Right. And um, how that um, plays into our lives. You know, a lot of that, uh, I guess, we create ourselves. But um, I was watching a documentary about uh, intelligent design being taught in school once. And there was this protein 
that has a, a rotating tail, like a, called a flagellum or something like that. Okay, I can't resist. Keep asking. I need to pull up, I need to pull up a slide. So I, I wanted to know what your thoughts are of it being a natural occurring process of having a machine-like protein in our, our ecosystem. Two-minute break. Two-minute break. Are we gonna watch a video? Yep. We're gonna. I bet you're gonna. We're gonna watch a video. No, it's good. What? <laughs> it's getting exciting. Okay, here's a here's a video for yes. you guys. Can we put the video on? Okay, that's the flagellum. It's like a bacterial motor. And what it does is it spins like a propeller, and it actually acts just like an outboard motor, propelling the cell. Let's see, can we do the next one? Well, what's happening is this bacterial flagellum is an outboard motor, and what it does is it has multiple parts. So it has like a base with a drive shaft, with an engine, so it spins at like 17,000 RPM. It then has, a, a, it has bearings that allow it to penetrate the cell membrane. It then has a hook, and then it has a tail that spins like a propeller. So when you look at it, it is, it's not like a machine, it is a machine. If you compare it to the outboard motor of a boat, it's the same. It's the same pieces, except much more sophisticated. And what's important about this is all these pieces have to be there at once for it to work. Now, remember, evolution argues you have one piece, it's good, two pieces, better, three pieces, better, four pieces, better. But here, you've got to have a few dozen pieces at once, or the motor doesn't work. That can't come about by a Darwinian process. That shows design, because you've got coordination, intentionality, you've got purpose. And the counter-argument, remember I talked to you about the Truman Show? That argument makes sense, right? You got a motor, it's got a few dozen pieces, it looks designed, right? The response is maybe you could borrow pieces from other machines. So you could borrow, you know, the tail here, the drive shaft here. But have you, any of you ever had IKEA furniture before that you had to assemble? Yep. If you've got a bunch of pieces of your furniture and you just start randomly moving them around, will that form your bookshelf or your desk? What do you need to assemble your furniture? You need instructions. And you need those tools, right? Like the Allen wrench. In the same way, if you, look at the, if you look at the assembly of this machine, it's in a very specific order with molecular tools that actually assemble it along the way in a very specific order. So what you see in this molecular machinery is evidence of design which is incontrovertible. I'm about to do an article on that, too. Great question. Um, I just want to ask, because you mentioned about the Big Bang Theory and how right. Um, it, was, it would be practically impossible just to pop out of the middle of nowhere. Um, and my question is, um, if there was an intelligent design behind the Big Bang Theory, um, one would beg the question of what or who would have created the designer behind this Right, great design. question, great question. So the question is, if there is a designer behind the Big Bang, who created the designer, right? Now, the problem is that everyone has to ask that question, because let's assume there is no God. Let's assume it's just the laws of nature. Who then created the laws of nature. You just have to say it's always there. 
So the only real way around the fine-tuning is to say there's an infinite number of universes with lots of different possible laws, and we just got lucky. So they have to propose, as a brute fact, an infinity that's just there, and that's the way it is. So we're kind of even. Either the ultimate reality is a god or a mind that's the creator, or the ultimate reality is just an infinite number of universes with lots of laws, and we just got lucky. It's kind of a draw. But where you break the draw is when you start looking at the evidence of the designer involved in creation, involved in the origin of life, involved in Jesus of Nazareth, who said, I am, when you see me, you've seen the Father. The fact he rose from the dead shows it's not just a multiverse, but there is a God working within our world. So, yes. So, uh... I guess I have like a minor quibble with, with uh, your presentation. Um, sort of like building off of Alex's question about the, um, you know, life not being a contradiction of, you know, laws of thermodynamics. Right. So you mentioned that it was impossible for both to have high energy and, and moving from high to low entropy. Right. And maybe this is just like, the super mathematician in me, but there, there's a massive gulf between impossible ah, great question. and very important. Thank you, thank and so you. once you have yeah, yeah, an yeah, infinite yeah. number great of question. universes... <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> let's, let's, let's make that... Anyone see, the, anyone see the movie Dumb and Dumber? <laughs> remember, remember when... Um, who, was, who was the actor? It was... Jim Carrey. Jim, oh, Jim Carrey, there we go. <laughs> Jim Gary says, what's the chance that we're going to date? <laughs> and she goes, it's like one chance in a million. He goes, you mean it's possible? <laughs> so it's kind of like that. So what happens is, <laughs> is you're right. There is a very small chance it could happen, and that's what that calculation was. So David Horowitz, who is a physicist, is actually asked the question, what is the possibility that you can get a cell? Um, and it actually wasn't even that, that it, was, it was how can you get an, a system of that high entropy of the magnitude of a cell. He found the odds were 1 in 10 to like 300 million. Now to give some context to that number is the likelihood of anything happening at all that is, or the probability threshold that beyond this probability it's impossible is like 1 in 10 to the 150th. So the way you get that is you look at the number of atoms in the universe, the fastest possible reaction times, the time of our universe, and that gives you like 1 in 10 to the 150th. But the chance of life is 1 in 10 to the 100 million. So clearly, yes, it's possible, kind of like Jim Carrey dating the woman, but it's really impossible, practically speaking. Short. Mine's more of a request. Is there anywhere that we can find this information, all your slides, along with possibly a bibliography of where you got them from? Uh, uh, yeah, yes, yes, um, yes. What I can do, uh, yes, what I did is I actually, I created, I created the slides and I used all, um, what's the word for it, uh, uh, public domain images. So I have a, a, a copy and it was recorded and I'll check on when that recording is going to be up for viewing. And then I'll send that information to Simon. So just stay in touch with him. We'll post it on and we'll get our that website. Great, great question. Very helpful. 
Um, I think we have uh, time for one last question. No pressure. <laughs> I might not say this question super well, so I apologize in advance. Um, so everything that you said, there's just so much certainty behind what you're saying and obvious right, right. years of thinking about it a ton, and you're obviously super smart. Well, um, thank you. <laughs> you have a nice but, sister. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think uh, part of my struggle, not with anything that you've said, but just within uh, Christian communities especially, faith right. communities, there's this attachment to the idea of certainty. Right, 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 right. The idea right, of, right. of worshiping with certainty and with absolution, um, which is like a really attractive idea. But I feel like that also <laughs> can give way to a lot of uh, kind of fundamentalism that can be really mm -hmm. damaging, uh, just kind of on the day-to-day -day level, the way that we interact with people and the way that we talk about who God is and Christianese phrases that are like so aggravating. <laughs> so I'm just curious, how do we... How do we hold these two things in tension? Great like question. all the information that you gave us, but then also how we interpret the Bible through our lens. You know, like right. how, do, how do we go about doing that in simple ways? What a fantastic question. Wow, that's good. Um, uh, very carefully. Uh, and again, I mean, that really, that really is the question. And I, I think it's, it's interesting on a very practical way that uh, I think a better, way that, better word than certainty is... is, is um, is solid confidence. Because I can't prove I'm not in the matrix. I might be in some spaceship, my brain might be in a t I can't prove that, right? <laughs> it's possible. It's possible, it's possible that our entire universe came in about 20 minutes ago in a cosmic blip. We just formed with all our memories intact. Not likely, but it's possible, right? So there is no such thing as absolute certainty in that mathematical sense. What we do have is, I would say, relational confidence. So the big thing with the Christian faith is it's not just about knowledge. It's not about accepting facts. It's not about ideas. It's about relationship. And one thing Jesus said is that if you're going to come into the kingdom, you've got to come as a little child. So for me, part of my story was an intellectual journey. That's just who I am. Part of my story was a relational encounter with a living God. The two work together. And the thing is, the, the, for me, the, the, what I did right is not I read the right books. I mean, God kind of helped me in all that. But I said, God, I don't know if you exist, but help me to know the truth and I'll follow it. Because most people engage doubt through pride. I'm just so much smarter than everybody and I doubt that's because I'm a better person and, you know, and who needs God anyway? And, and pride alienates if you, go as a, if you go humbly and say, God, I just want to know the truth. If you don't exist, if you do exist, help me to know. And, I mean, one of, my favorite, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament is Thomas. Because Jesus appeared to all the disciples but Thomas. But, and Thomas, interestingly enough, was a twin, right? So when he heard the stories of the resurrection, he probably assumed they had gotten the wrong person because people confused him with his brother all the time. What happened is Thomas said, I will not believe unless I touch the wounds in his wrist and the wounds in his side. A true empiricist. And Jesus appeared to him. And what, Thomas, what Jesus did not say is, shame, 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 faith is blind. He said, go ahead and touch the wounds in my wrist and the wounds in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And the beauty is, God can reach out to us in different ways. So some people, it's going to be the science. Some it's the history. Some it's the beauty. Some it's 
a supernatural encounter. I've known people that have had supernatural encounters or divine healings or whatever it is. God can reach down to us, but the key is our humble hearts and saying, God, you're creator, not me. You're not lost. I'm lost. Help me to know the truth. And then God will meet us where we are. I, so... And one thing that's important is what blocks our hearts from truth is often forgiveness, bitterness. And what I find is when people start to judge others, when there's unforgiveness, when we accept lies, it's like a spiritual cloud that prevents us from seeing truth. So our posture has to be trust and release judgments, release unforgiveness. Then we're able to receive God's love, and it's that infusion of love that makes all the difference. So, Thank you. Um, that's, that's very helpful. I want to, Megan, um, I, I thought that was a, a tremendous question and a good final question. Um, you made a point in your question. I think it's very, very important as we get to ready to wrap up. Um, the purpose of this wasn't so that we can be like, yeah, we got a smart guy. Like, we, we got... You know, <laughs> um, no, that, that wouldn't be helpful at all. Um, I think that... Uh, we, we need to acknowledge the point that you've made, and that is that we're not here to just gain this sort of um, impenetrable certainty that really is just not helpful or attractive, um, or I think, I don't think it, it does um, the cause justice. What, what we're trying to do here, um, get to know God more, experience his love, um, the beautiful mystery that I think is intrinsic to the faith that we're talking about, it's, it's a part of of, of what we, we want, what we need as human beings, um, as, is, as is the science and, and all of that as well. But it's so important um, that that point be made um, so that we go out of here. Um, we, we can be humble people um, and not think that somehow we've got these airtight answers about a God who's so infinitely beyond what we'll ever be able to fathom in this life. And I think it's a really good thing. Would you like to make uh, some closing comments and then uh, th perhaps th end you. the evening with a word of prayer? Thank you. It was, it was such a pleasure. And um, again, my encouragement, if there's those out here that are wrestling with doubts, that's fine. I mean, doubts is normal. Doubts means your faith is real. If you don't doubt your faith, it's probably not that real in many ways. Um, if some of you are seeking after what is real, maybe you've never even thought about God before, I encourage you just to say, God, if you're real, help me to know the truth. And again, do it in community. There's people here that will walk with you, that'll pray with you, and will really stand with you through trials. And often for people, really, it's not so much the science that brings them the faith, it's tasting and seeing that it's good. So follow, just read his words, follow them, engage in community, and then I think God will do the rest. So thank you very much. I'll pray for you now. <laughs> Father, I, I just thank you uh, just for an opportunity to come here today and um, just to share some truth, um, to share conversation, to share friendships. And I pray for each person in this room who is seeking after you that may be wrestling with doubts, that may be not sure if you exist. I pray, Father, that you would show them your love, your compassion, your goodness, I pray if there's a barrier or a lie or uh, an area of unforgiveness or anything that's blocking people from experiencing the fullness of who you are, that you would reveal it to them and help them to step into a place where they can know your goodness. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.